This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. Hey, everybody, guess what? The creative writing community is now open for membership. I'm so excited about this community because it is going to be dedicated to writers writing their book, publishing their book, and launching their book, all while having a good time and growing in their craft. Writing is typically an all-alone art, but you don't have to be a lone wolf and do everything yourself. In fact, I highly recommend that you don't, just for your own sanity. In the creative writing community, we're going to have live writing sprints, author hangouts, expert Q&As. We're going to learn all about the things that it takes to be an author these days and generally support each other in the craft. It will be a place where you can share your knowledge and learn from others and find collaboration and accountability with people who are serious about growing as writers. We're going to support each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, and be generally as committed to seeing each other succeed as we are to our own success. If you're interested in being part of such a group, head on over to catcaldwell.com and just click the pink button right at the header. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the weekend of April 16th. We are midway through April 2021. Can anyone believe that? Crazy. Spring has definitely sprung here in the DC area. We are experiencing our first spring. And let me tell you, as somebody with asthma and allergies, it's a little rough. (laughs) I am someone who refuses to not go outside these days. You know, 40 years, almost 40 years into my life, I am being really stubborn, like my grandmother. She was always so stubborn. She's going to do what she was going to do. End of story. And not her body or her doctor or anybody was going to tell her any differently. And I've kind of gotten to be like that. I spent a lot of my childhood indoors, you know, after you get sent to the hospital several times for emergency breathing treatments and spend a couple stints in the hospital because of your asthma, your parents tend to keep you inside, especially when you live on a farm or near a farm. So we were always either on a farm or near a farm, except for a couple of years. But I know you might hear my lungs right now. I swear it is not COVID. <laughs> I am COVID free. It is just the nasty pollen, but it's beautiful here. It really, really is beautiful. It reminds me a lot of France. We lived in the south of France for six years, and it was just as green, just as hilly. But I had a lot of baby, like little babies there, so I didn't get to go out and hike as much. And I do have to say, like living in the city of Toulouse versus kind of the suburbs of Virginia, suburbs of DC, I guess, the area has done a really great job of having a lot of park and hiking trails available. Uh, so it's really nice. Very, very nice to get out and walk the dog and sort of, you know, run up some hills. And I just take my allergy medicine and take that inhaler and I don't know, eat well. That's what I do. My theory is maybe it will get better. Of course, I'll let you know. Hopefully I won't end up in the hospital with a 
emergency breathing treatment, right? Anyway, I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit. I am changing up the podcast a little, getting a little more personal. I really like the format that a couple of people that I listen to are doing. So yes, we are having an interview today. I have an interview almost every week for you guys because I adore hearing the stories of people who are out there who are making their creativity their business. I love it. I hope that you guys love it too. As far as I as I know, according to the numbers of the podcast, you do like it. So we tend to have a steady increase every week on the podcast. So I really thank you guys for listening. If you haven't left a review, if you listen on Apple, um, I would love it if you would subscribe and leave a review. Really, the subscription and the number of reviews is what kind of puts you up in the Apple list, I guess. And it doesn't even matter. I've heard the stars. It just matters the reviews. I mean, I hope if you're listening, you you know, it's better than a one star, better than a two star, but hey, you know, always be honest. So if you would do that, that'd be awesome. If you listen on another platform, if you give it a review and if there's a subscription option there, I don't, I don't know how Google Play works or Spotify works, but definitely keep it on your playlist because I have some amazing people coming up, really, really interesting stories that I think you're going to enjoy. Before we get into the conversation that I have with Hope Bollinger today, before I introduce you to her, I want to talk to you a little bit about your creativity and about learning. So as some of you probably know, probably most of you, I am a writer. Aside from the podcast, my main passion is writing. I write fiction. I have a historical romance, which was my first indie published. The story on publishing my first first one is too much to get into right now. It's not on the market. My second one was a magical realism fantasy novel. That's an audience with a king. The first one was called Stepping Across the Desert. And I'm coming out with a contemporary women's fiction. I think that's the genre that it is. I'm still investigating. It's amazing how many genres we now have in the writing world. And it matters because it matters to Amazon. <laughs> that is how you rank your book, how you get up. You, oh, it's all this stuff. Someday we will have to get into that if that's something you guys are interested in. I know not all of you are writers, though, so I try not to constantly talk about writing. So I am a writer. That is my main passion. And as far as learning writing goes, I did take a few classes in college, but to be honest, I never really thought that I needed to learn writing. <laughs> Anyone else feel like this with their creativity? Like You know it's part of you. You know it's in you. You know how to do it more or less. And you just like, you just need to practice, right? You just need to do it and practice and maybe get some advice or feedback, but you know how to do your creativity. That's how I felt for a really long time. I'm a little embarrassed to look back on this one nonfiction writing class that I took in college. I had finished my first novel at that point, and it had been accepted by this little press. And I knew for a fact that it was not a vanity press. But what I did not understand back in 20, you know, 2003, no, 2005, I guess, or I don't know, you know, around that time. <laughs> 17 years ago, let's say, 
it wasn't a vanity press, but I didn't understand that it was a hybrid press. I understood that I shouldn't pay to get my book published, so I didn't pay a penny. The thing is, they didn't edit it. They didn't do a great job on the book cover. They didn't market it. You know, they didn't do any of that. But I was in this moment of having signed the contract and just, you know, super elated about it. And I was an author and boy, did I have a chip on my shoulder about it. So in this class, I was like, feeling like I knew so much. And instead, I, I did learn a lot in that class. I actually look back really fondly on it. And I'm sad that I, I don't know, through the moves or whatever, I don't have the essays that I wrote during that class. It would be interesting to be able to go back and, and see them. But I just had a chip on my shoulder. And there was a woman that, a young woman, I guess we were all young then, that wrote this wrote this really beautiful essay actually about going out in Taiwan and getting drunk and, and getting caught by her parents. But it was really well written. It was beautiful. And my chip just like dug into my shoulder. I had this mental battle, honestly, of like how great her essay was and kind of realizing that maybe I didn't know everything, you know, it, I don't know. It's one of these things that we have to go through as young people, not even as just young people. As I got older, I still didn't really pursue uh, learning a lot about my craft. I pursued practicing it. I have journals and journals and journals that show that I practiced it. Lots of started short stories that show that I practiced it. So it was. it's really in the past few years that I've seriously thought about digging in and learning. And that took a lot of taking away my ego and putting myself kind of in, in the place that I should be of more curiosity and open to learning rather than the chip on my shoulder, rather than, you know, getting stuck in what I know. I wanted to expand out into what I didn't know and learn and that was quite a personal journey to get to go through. And it really came and manifested into last year. I did a lot of um, business learning, getting into a couple different groups. And then this year I am in a couple writing groups, uh, writing classes. Like one group is specifically about a certain writing aspect, really digging into literary fiction and the voice and the narrative and it's a great class. If you are looking for that sort of thing, Tracy Skuse is an excellent teacher. I'm really, really good. And it's a great, great class. And I think it's it's really affordable compared to a lot of other classes out there. And you know what? We have to we have to pay people what they deserve. You know, she puts a lot of effort into this class. She knows a lot and she spends a lot of time with us. Every week we get on and we go through a whole lesson and we do feedback and it's great. So Tracy Skuse is a great teacher. I think that opens up again in the fall. Um, maybe I'll have her on so that she can, she was on back in January, but I'll have her on again a little bit later and she can talk about it in the fall. I'm also in a mastermind, a writing mastermind and learning from indie authors who are just farther along than me, who are making a full-time living from being an indie author. And I have 
worked really hard in the last three years to like build the foundation of my career. And while you're doing that and raising three kids and following a husband around as he as he climbs in his own career, it hasn't always been monetarily beneficial, let's say, <laughs> because you you only have you know so much time. So while I do sell my books, Stepping Across the Desert, an audience with the king. In fact, Stepping Across the Desert, the historical romance, I am looking into just a little bit with the different accents. It's set in the 1800s. So I'm working with an, my editor who's in England to sort of make sure there aren't any kinks in there at all with the accent and the, the culture. And it's going to come out with a new cover that will be revealed to you in the summer, I hope. <laughs> but we're already mid-April. It's crazy. And then my contemporary will come out in September. And I feel like then I have a lot more time to really ramp up focusing on the book, the selling the book. I wonder if you guys have ever been in that place where you're like building up the business side and the creativity side sort of has to take a rest. And then you have to build up the creativity side and then the business side, you know, you just hope that it kind of the wheels keep turning, (laughs) you know, so what are you guys doing this year to learn? So I'm in this mass, in this writing class and then this mastermind group where I'm learning from indie authors and how they've really built out their career. You know, they live full-time off of their books along with their podcasts, along with, you know, some of them ghostwrite, their creativity. They are living full-time off of that. I know some of you already are. You know, you are full-time artists. But I also know that some of you, while you might do fine art, you still have to do, you know, the, the things that pay the bills, which it, it still parallels your creativity, but it's not, you know, maybe your number one love. Music. I know a couple of you are making your own albums that you still have to teach on the side in order to supplement your income. I think that's part of creativity, right? It's just, it is how the world sees creativity and art. And we all hope someday that will change. I mean, in the book world, people want to spend $2 on a book, which means you earn about $1.10 on the book, you know, so that you got to sell a lot of books (laughs) to to make a full-time career out of that. So I know we're all dealing with these balancing acts, but I'm just wondering, what are you guys doing to learn more about your craft? Are you expanding out and trying a new medium that you haven't tried before, a different kind of music, a different way to write, a different way to paint, to draw, whatever it is that you do. I'd love to hear from you. I'm on Instagram, pencils and lipstick, spelled out and, and, or you can, you can DM me there or respond to the the social media there, or you can go to my personal one at caldwell.author on Instagram. That's where I am most of the time. And if you are a writer and you're looking for a place that you can learn more things that you just feel like you're going down the rabbit hole every time you have to, you know, get another step of this whole indie author thing, whether it's your website or what to do on social media, or what the heck is an author newsletter, what should your lead magnet be, all these things. You know, every time I heard those, these new words, I was like, what is that? And then, then I would go down another Google rabbit hole. Try 
a writing group. And if you want to check out my writing group, it is a little bit different than any of the ones I've seen. Doesn't mean that there's not one like mine out there. We have a private forum. We do a lot of live interaction. I bring in experts who come in and talk to us about all the things that we need to do as indie writers, as people who are setting up our careers in this field. We have live hangouts where we talk about our books and we learn to present our books and we learn about each other so that we can help promote each other as our books come out. We have live writing sprints. Some of them are where we just sit and see each other's faces and we write and then we take a break and chat and we write and we take a break and chat. Sometimes it's with a prompt and we have live editing. We have tons of stuff. We do a lot of interactive things plus the forum. If you want to hear more about it, if you want to talk about it, if you want to ask any questions about it, you can DM me. I'll send you a link where you can get together with me on Zoom, face-to-face, ask me whatever you want, no pressure. I know there are different writing groups out there and personalities need to go where personalities will soar, right? But the idea behind the creative writing community is that we will get to know each other, we will encourage each other, and we will support each other as we become successful authors. So DM me at catcaldwell.author on Instagram if you want, or at pencilsandlipstick on Instagram. I will also have a link in the show notes where you can just sign up directly for a little chat with me. Again, no pressure. Ask all the questions you want. I am here to help you. Now, the interview for this week, I chatted with Hope Bollinger. Hope is the content editor or a content editor at Salem Media, and she is a multi-published author. So she sees two different sides of the world, right, of the creative world. She sees all the manuscripts that come in and helps to decide what they are going to push out to try to get published. And then she writes her own books. So she has this array of knowledge that if you are a writer or wanting to be a writer, whether you're going to go traditionally published or indie published, she has a lot of information for us. And I'm really, really excited for you guys to hear from her. She she has quite a few books out there already. She's very young, still has a ton of ambition. And I really, really enjoyed hearing from her. She she claims she doesn't have a lot of energy, but she sounds like she has a lot of energy. She really energized me to just keep going forward, to keep writing, keep going. I think she is exactly what some of us need to hear right now as it's, you know, a year later into this pandemic thing. And we need to understand where the industry is going, where it might be headed. Like FYI, they don't want any COVID-19 related books. Who knew? <laughs> I think we all want to forget that. So definitely take a listen before you go down that rabbit hole of writing, you know, your your crazy apocalyptic COVID-19 book. <laughs> Maybe make it a, make it a different named virus. <laughs> Maybe. You can find Hope on Instagram and Twitter at Hope Bollinger. It's B-O-L-I-N-G-E-R. 
And she says that that is her favorite place to procrastinate. So if you have any other questions or just want to tell her how much you enjoyed the show, definitely go there and let her know. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Hope Bollinger. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. Today, I have with me Hope Bollinger. She is a literary agent at Kyle. That is C-Y-L-E. We'll talk a little bit about that. And she has extensive experience in the writing and the publishing and literary field. So I'm excited to talk with her today. Hi, Hope. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on here. Oh, I'm excited to have you on here. Uh, You have worked in almost everything, it looks like, as far (laughs) as writing and publishing and editing. And it kind of sounds like you sort of tumbled into it. Could you tell us a little backstory about you? So I always thought up until I was about 16 or 17 years old that I was supposed to be a teacher. And then it turned out that to be a teacher, you actually have to be able to teach, which I could not. So uh, having a little bit of identity crisis in high school, and I realized one of my friends was writing books. And so at the time, I thought they were crazy because I'd never written anything longer than a stage play. So um, I couldn't fathom the idea of sitting down and writing 300 pages at a time. And so the next week I decided to give it a go. I got bit by the bug and immediately kind of started writing like crazy. And so by the time I got to about 17 years old, I wanted to break into the industry. So I started sending stuff out to agents and I realized really quickly that they did not get back. And if they happened to get back, they did not provide feedback at all. So I kind of wanted to find a way to sneak into the industry figure out how to get into the industry so I could help other writers kind of sneak in as well. So, mm-hmm. and then I guess the rest is history from there, took on a lot of internships, went through a publishing specific program in college, and now life is crazy. So here we are. It sounds like you're a very focused individual. You're like, oh, if they're not going to do this, I'm going to change it. So here we go. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. Uh, for Enneagram, I'm kind of like type three. So I'm just very solidly focused on the task at hand. But yeah, I just kind of want to take, I guess, the publishing industry by storm a little bit in a sense. But I want to, because so many writers have so many good stories. And I want to find a way that they can kind of take that draft to final form and get it in the hands of readers. So I, I had that deep desire within myself and I want to help other people be able to realize that as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. So your college had a, what did you call it? A publishing focus? Yeah. So the technical name of it is professional writing, but the focus of the program is basically learning everything there is to know about the publishing industry. So you have classes on different types of edits that you will have to do um, from an editing standpoint, but also from a writing standpoint as well. We have design classes, so you learn kind of what goes into formatting books and design copy. And then, of course, you go to conferences as well as part of this program, and you get to meet with agents and publishers in person. And that was super integral to my own personal journey because I met the agent of Kyle at a conference. So those connections were really important. Wow, that sounds great. So that's definitely a really good option for anyone who's looking to go to college and doing a little bit more than just studying literature, I guess. (laughs) As a writer, I mean, I'm a little bit, a few decades older than you. So going to college, I was always like, I don't think they teach writing at college. (laughs) 
So, so many writers get a different degree or they don't end up going. So that sounds, that sounds amazing. Plus, like, like you said, you get to break into sort of the background, kind of get in on the back end there. Yeah, no, it was really helpful. They also, the program was to get lots of internships, lots of firsthand experience too. So, I mean, it's not just book publishing specific. We had people who went into magazines and newspapers and the marketing but it kind of helped people to learn what their specific niche was and where they didn't fit well too, because mm. that's always tricky to navigate as soon as you leave college. So that was really a really cool part of the program that's too. True. So how was your writing journey as you're doing all this? Cause you're kind of, I'm sure you have to write quite a bit for the university, but you're writing fiction. Like that was probably where you started. So how did you balance that? And what did it, did anything sort of like come up and down as you were trying to do your personal writing? Yeah. So I definitely don't recommend doing what I did. I had to learn a lot about self-care and boundaries for yourself along the way, because I took my health a little bit too far in this, in that process. But yeah, I always did try to balance having a project going at the same time as whatever else I was doing. I mean, I worked on school newspaper at the time I was interning for a publishing company and an agency, I think literally all at the same time with a full load of classes, but I was always working on a different fiction project. I think I've been told somewhere along the way that you had to write a million words to truly hit your writing voice. And I think it was about book 10 that I written where I finally actually found that voice. So I did always have something going. I was really kind of hesitant to send it out to publishers because I really wanted it to be the right project. So when I finally did get an agent kind of through some of those conference connections that I had made, they ended up sending out one of my books initially, but that didn't end up being the one that got contracted first. So that is always something interesting to know too, is that even if you get an agent, it may not be the initial book that you send them. That may not be the one that ends up getting sold first. So that was a lesson I did definitely have to learn along the way is that um, sometimes your first book is not going to be the one that ends up on bookshelves. Yeah. So I have all those 10 books been published now or yeah. Well, no. So most of those in high school were like originally fan fiction. I will never give out my username on fanfiction.net or whatever the original website was. So no, those were definitely experimental stuff from high school, which I will never show anyone. But no, so it wasn't kind of until basically I had reached book 10 where I started kind of seeing them getting contracted and getting published by publishers. So it took a lot of honing of my voice, getting rid of certain writing bad habits before I kind of started to learn, okay, this is what should be happening in the story at this point. This is what the character should sound like. Also, something that was really helpful was reading in the genre. I kind of was a little bit snooty going into college thinking I was like a classics only reader that I felt like, you know, nothing that has been published in the modern sense is any good. And of course, I was completely wrong in that sense. I read lots of good books that have been published recently, but publishing trends are changing so quickly that you have to read stuff Mm -hmm. that has been published recently, not only because it's really good, but because also what was published 10 years ago is not getting published now. So that was also really helpful to honing my voice was to kind of know, okay, what is doing really well in the market right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that we all have to go through that journey as writers or probably as any artist. It's like what you think you're like on top of the world at 17 and you really think that you got it down because your your teacher at high school thinks you're great and you're, that's <laughs> great. You know, I mean, it's good for our <laughs> ego, but I remember the first rejection letter I got. I was crushed. 
And yeah. yet it was a really, looking back, it's, it was a really great letter because they actually gave feedback, but I had no idea what that meant. I didn't mm-hmm. know that, you know, that wasn't very usual, but yeah, it's definitely a learning process. Um, but I like that million words. You have to write a million words to find your voice. That's interesting. That's an interesting way to put it. That would almost motivate you to just start writing down words, whatever it is. <laughs> just yeah. got to hone the craft. Oh yeah. And writing is a lot like exercising a muscle. I mean, you know, you're exercising your brain, so you have to kind of keep at it too. I know a lot of people often will wait for the muse to kind of strike. And the thing is, I think it was Mark Twain, but I'm going to totally butcher this. One of them said that you kind of have to chase after the muse with a club. You really have to just kind of write even when you're not feeling like it. Uh, One of my writing teachers suggests putting a timer and just staring at the screen. And even if you don't write any words that day, you know, okay, this is the time. I'm going to write today and I'm going to try to do what I can. So yeah, yeah, just super encourage people to, if you are hesitant to get started on that, just go ahead and write a terrible first draft. No one has to read it. You will edit it later. I promise. Yes. Yes. I love telling people that no one's going to see your first draft and the, it's weird. Cause you have to struggle with that, that voice in the back of your head that like, well, I don't want to be that person that takes, you know, 50 edits to get your book done, but it's, it's much better. And we just, touched on it a little bit, like the books that you were glad aren't published, you know, I have a couple of those. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. I didn't get those out there and I don't have to run around trying to get them back off the shelves, but you know, just, you don't have to be perfect in your first draft, but also don't not keep editing, make it Mm -hmm. as good as possible. It's kind of like those weird balance we got to do, right? For sure, because you can definitely see people swing to the other end of the uh, spectrum where even if they write a good first draft, because there are writers out there who write a very clean first draft and they honestly only need like two or three more edits on that thing. But you definitely run into writers who, I mean, I was this way initially in the industry before I kind of got knocked on my butt. It just kind of, you know, they think that their book is the best thing ever and that it doesn't need edits. And I've worked with writers like this from an editing perspective, and they are extremely difficult to work with because they do not like that you have suggestions for them to change things. So that is definitely an important thing too, is to be flexible, to know that people can see blind spots that you Mm. are not seeing. I know I have plenty of them. I've written like, I think 23 books at this point, and I still have plenty of blind spots I have to work through. And so I appreciate having beta readers and critiquers and editors who can kind of catch those things. Yeah. I mean, it's all kind of part of that writing process on any getting feedback is difficult because you've spent so much time on it and it's so close to you. I don't know about you, but I see it like a movie in my head. Mm -hmm. So even if, if it's not written down on the page, I know what's happening. And so it's almost difficult to then think that the editor or the beta reader doesn't see it like that. And so it can almost become a shock, you know, like, how do you not know what they're doing right now? And you just sort of have to take that step back and not take it personally. You know, they're trying to help you. For sure. I mean, a lot of people refer to their book as their baby. It does often feel like that way. Obviously, I'm not a mom, but this is kind of the closest connection I can make to it is that, you know, the characters are very real to you. The stories are very real. So when someone kind of takes a red pen to it, it's really, it's painful sometimes. Yeah, it can be. So let's get back to you getting an agent. You, you sort of sold them on one book, but that's not the one that sold. So how was, how did that process go? 
Oh gosh, it was a long process. Let me try to like condense. So actually the initial agent I'd reached out to rejected me and let me walk you through that process. Okay. So met this agent at a conference and was talking with him. He seemed like interested in my book. So I knew he was relatively new to the industry, was looking to expand his list. So I said, okay, I'll go ahead and send it to him. So he looked at it and he said, you know, this is cleaner than a lot of my clients' copies are. This seems like a really good story. Are you willing to make these edits to it? And he gave me about, I think it was 200 hours of edits to this thing. And I said, okay, I really want an agent, so I will do this. So I, it was summer vacation. I was working like five different jobs trying to afford, you know, college and stuff like that. So I was doing that on top of all of that. Finished it, I think, about two weeks later, turned it back into him, and then got like dead silence. Absolutely nothing. So checked in with him about eight weeks later and got a form rejection, basically saying, I um, am not taking on any more clients. So sorry. So I was devastated, but I decided to get an internship with his agency. Didn't realize it was with his agency at the time. And he remembered me. So, um, and this was about a year later when I got this internship. And he said, you know, I am full. My list is too crowded, but we do have another agent on our team. Do you want to send your book to her and um, have her give it a look? And so I said, sure, why not? And she ended up picking it on. (laughs) So it was a time. I was heartbroken when I got that rejection because so much work went into that thing. So an encouragement for y'all is that if you kind of go through something similar, hopefully not something similar, because that really kind of knocked me down for quite a bit of time. Know that, you know, a rejection doesn't always mean no forever, or it doesn't always mean that you are not going to get other opportunities. And that's why it's really important to be really gracious, even when you get a rejection, because news spreads across the industry like wildfire. Wow. If an author is polite, or if they are not polite. So um, agencies talk. Yeah. Okay. So he probably wouldn't have recommended the other agent had you viciously typed away. <laughs> and it happens. You know, I, I, working as an agent, I get literally thousands of submissions. So I always try to be kind. I always try to give feedback because I know most agents don't. And some people have been super polite. So I said, you know, I'm not a good fit, but you've been so gracious. And this is, you know, it's really well written. So here's another agent at my agency I will recommend to you. So I've done that. I've also had people send me very mean replies to emails. And, you know, some agents may have messaged me later saying, hey, did you get a submission from this person? I said, yeah, but they really didn't react to feedback well. So get ready for that. So they wow. do talk. agents really do. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense when you think of it. It's probably a much smaller industry than we maybe know from the outside. But I can imagine, yeah, let's keep all of our emotions to our journal. I always tell people, don't put it on Facebook and don't send it to the literary agent. I mean, that's just a good manner. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and it it applies to publishers, too. I've known publishers who, when they worked with an author who was really difficult, they said, okay, we're never working with this author again. And sometimes they won't work with a certain agency again if the agency keeps supplying very difficult to work with authors. So. Yeah, that's something to keep in mind too, is um, when you are signing on with an agent, kind of do a little, do a little research, see who else they're representing. Is, does this person have a certain reputation in the industry? That's also really important to look at too, because it is a lot smaller, the industry, than one would think. Okay. Wow, that's really good advice. So when he sent you those edits, were they good edits? Were, were they edits that you kept in the book and they were 
I mean, how does that work if he he gave you hours and hours of work to do? So, yeah, it was a lot of copy edit stuff. So it really wasn't even plot. It was a lot of copy edits. And honestly, it made the book a lot more stilted. So it's kind of, it's like a certain editing process. He walks certain clients through. I feel so bad because I'm like, oh no, what if he's listening on this? (laughs) I personally don't do that. What I did with my own clients is that I would... If they like send me a book, I will work through them through the book and kind of point out, okay, you need to fix this here and there. Most agents usually do that to some degree. They will walk them through an editorial process. So I think it made the book a little bit too stilted because he'd be like, make sure you don't have this certain word in the manuscript. And that word appeared everywhere in the manuscript. So it wasn't really tailored for your book then, it sounds like. Not at all, especially since it was a YA book and YA is often like super experimental. What you're finding with the big five is people are breaking rules all the time. So I didn't really like how the book ended up. I'm actually probably going to have to massively rewrite this book. I do have a publisher who's interested, but I do not want to send it to them until Mm. I kind of basically rework this entire thing. But it was um, kind of a learning experience. I actually learned that it's okay to say no to certain edits and say no to even if you get like a revise and resubmit. If you feel that they really just don't understand the vision of your book, that it's okay to say no and hope for another opportunity. Because I have many stories of revise and resubmit horror stories that either I or my clients went through where it just ended up that they just didn't understand the vision of the book and we ended up getting it a different home. Okay. So how would one, if if a, a young person starting out and they're looking for an agent and they sort of get that, do you think it's because... And I can, I can think back to when I was like almost that desperation of an agent, any agent, if they bite, you're going to send it to them because you're just so excited that they're looking for it. Is it just because should they look specifically more and wait for that genre specific agent, do you think, or what kind of advice can they try to avoid that then? Yeah. So, I mean, it, I definitely understand the temptation because I still have to bite back that with a lot of publishers who I'm kind of like, oh, any publisher, any publisher would be great. And that's, that's not always a good fit. So yeah, one thing I always encourage people as an agent is make sure you have an agent who is a hundred percent on board with your story, super excited about your story because they are going to be your number one cheerleader. I have as an agent, I don't think I represented them anymore, but I've had certain agents leave the agency and I adopted some of their clients and I wasn't as excited about their book as that agent was. So I wasn't, although I tried my best to get it into different houses, it wasn't sort of the level of passion and excitement you need from an agent. So um, although it does take a bit of time to find the right fit, I highly encourage people to make sure to do your research. Do not go for the first offer that comes to you unless you are absolutely certain it will be a good fit. No agency is going to be completely perfect, but um, it needs to be someone who is absolutely in love with the story that you have for them. Okay. All right. So after you're getting these internships, is there a moment that you decided that being an agent, there are various things that you can do in the industry. Like, how did you decide that agent was the right fit for you? So ever since I was 16, I either wanted to run a publishing company or be an agent. And running a publishing company is still something that is on my radar for some time down the road. But I mean, I initially, when I was 16, 17, realized that agencies and publishers are the gatekeepers of the industry. And so I just, I mean, I enjoyed every single aspect of the job. It's a lot of fun kind of being able to meet with publishers one-on-one on Zoom calls like this. It's really fun to 
find the right fit for your client and open that door that they would not have been able to do so themselves. So I enjoy a lot of aspects of it. I definitely at one point do want to do acquisitions at a publishing house just because not only do I enjoy having my own books published, but I love being able to help other authors get their books published as well. I love being able to see that vision and collaborate with them to find a way to get that vision onto bookshelves. So the idea was always kind of planted there ever since I was 17. I mean, it's obviously taken a little bit of time to get there, but yeah, it's just sort of always kind of been in the back of my mind that that was going to be what I ended up doing. Okay. So as, as a agent, as you're, so I guess if you want to break into that internships are a great way to do that going and finding that. So how can you explain if somebody doesn't really know what an agent does, what your work involves? Yeah. So it's a lot of things, but yeah, agents are your biggest cheerleader. They are the spy that's going to sneak you into the industry. They do a number of things. So first of all, they get your book ready to put in front of publishers. Usually your book has to be pretty close. Otherwise an agent won't take you on, but they're going to kind of help you hone it a little bit more just before they open those doors. Then they're going to put you on submission and they're going to send it to the publishing houses they think are the best fit for it. And then they'll keep you in the loop as to whether a publisher is requesting to see the whole thing, whether you get a rejection. And if you have to go back and make edits on that thing, that's another thing they do. They should be constantly meeting with new contacts in the industry. I always warn people against agents who send to the same 10, 20 publishers, because although maybe they'll have really strong relationships with those contacts, they need to be constantly expanding the contacts that they have. So they should be meeting with publishers regularly. And then another thing they do is they'll negotiate your contract for you. So sometimes Mm -hmm. certain publishers, not all, will kind of put a couple of trick clauses in those contracts. So you are kind of there to make sure that they get the best deal possible and that there's uh, nothing tricky that's happening. And then another thing you do is that you serve as a mediator. So let's say a publisher gives your writer a horrible book cover or you and your the publisher and the writer are really disagreeing on a certain edit that's where the agent can kind of step in and be a diplomat to both parties. So no relationships are severed. And so you can kind of move forward on the book contract, having both parties being satisfied with the result. Right, right. That, that sounds great, especially because a lot of writers are not great at advocating for themselves. They're a little bit more introvert, I would guess. And it, it would be intimidating to go up against the publishing house and say, I really hate that book cover. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, if you don't have an agent, because the agent usually knows how to word things. So, you know, obviously the publisher is not feeling like you're attacking them. I've seen certain writers who don't have agents who, when they kind of put up a big fuss against the publisher, whether about a book cover or something, the publisher basically said, take it or leave it. So the agent is kind of there to make sure that stuff doesn't happen either, where if a writer is really upset with the job they're doing, that you try to kind of help the most you can to make sure that they are having a good publishing experience with that house. Yeah, absolutely. So would you recommend to newer writers, we're going to assume that a writer who's looking for an agent has done quite a bit of writing. We'll put that out on the table first. So not a new, new writer, but somebody who's done quite a bit of writing has a manuscript. They think it's pretty ready. Would you recommend that they get it edited before they send it to an agent or just have it as ready as they themselves can have it? I mean, I always advocate for going to an editor just because it never hurts to have the most pairs of eyes 
on a manuscript. Obviously, critique groups and beta readers are really great for this as well. But I I personally had a professional editor go through one of my manuscripts before mm-hmm. I had approached an agent. I know it's an investment, but I, trust me, it is definitely worth it because you kind of want it to be the best it can be before it gets in front of an agent because you would not believe the number of manuscripts where there were misspellings all over the first page or chapter one really should have started in chapter six. And so an editor is able to really find some of those things. I know a lot of publishers will have editors who will edit for uh, part-time freelance work or certain agents or publishers who have retired who have the editing background also usually have certain services. Definitely vet your editors too, because anyone can kind of put up their flag and say, I'm an editor, but what sort of classes have they taken? Are they trained? Do they know Chicago manual style? That sort of thing. Uh, What have other authors said about them? That's usually a really good thing to know about a professional editor. But I, I say the investment is usually worth it. I know some authors are a little bit more polished than others when it comes to being able to look through edits, but it never hurts to have it be professionally edited. So it's going to, it's going to get you a better chance at getting an agent. I would guess maybe a little quicker, even if it might still take a while, <laughs> but, but maybe a little quicker. For sure. Yeah, I definitely think so. Cause look, usually editors will have a turnaround time within about a month too. So it just never hurts yeah. to send it to them, have them look through it make those applied edits, even mention to the agent that it has been professionally edited. If the editor is well known, tell them who the editor was. That usually can kind of give you a leg up in the competition. Okay. So as they are writing their, what do you, it's, is it the query letter? Yeah. The query letter. <laughs> okay. So being able to say, even if you're, if you don't have another book published, who edited it can kind of get you a leg up. For sure. Or even just the fact that it has been professionally edited usually is helpful. Sometimes, yeah, certain writers will go to conferences and they'll have people critique it. And so they may mention that, but yeah, usually just shows because we are professional writers in this business. So it just kind of shows like a certain level that you did a little bit extra work to make sure that it was in the right state it needed to be. Okay. So most agents, are they professional writers as well? Honestly, no. So um, although I know several that are writers as well, it's not as usual. I I enjoy being a writer and an agent because I do know what it's like to be on both sides of the desk. So I think from an empathy standpoint, I can definitely understand what writers are going through. But a lot of times certain agents have an editing background, but they don't have a writing background. Or a lot of them had previously worked for publishers and then they retired to be an agent uh, that's why I've seen at a lot of conferences, at least two. So it's not atypical that an agent can also be a writer, but uh, it's not always the norm. Mm. So basically, it's the job that if you really like reading, they'll pay you to read. <laughs> and I not mean, necessarily also, to write. As an agent, you don't get paid until your client does. So oh, if an agent important. is charging you, run. Um, you are not supposed to pay an agent. So no, we don't We don't get paid to read, unfortunately, I wish. But um, no, so that's part of the reason why an agent should be your biggest advocate is because okay. they want your book to sell because they will not get a percentage of either that advance, that royalty, whatever. They won't get a dime until you get your book placed at a publisher. So if okay. an agency is like, here's a reading fee, do not submit to that agency. They are not supposed to get paid until you do. Interesting. Okay. Important note to understand about this. Okay. So it you 
have written about, you say you write about 250 to 300 articles a year. Your blog is extensive (laughs) and the links will be in the show notes, but it's hopebollinger.com. And you have so much information on your blog. I think it's, I think it's kind of up there. I mean, Jane Friedman is, has, you know, a couple decades ahead of you, but. Oh, that's a good blog. blog. I mean, man, you have a lot of stuff in here between like, is it classes, which yes, obviously (laughs) we could talk about that maybe another time. I mean, the publishing industry is just, you know, you, they can only publish so many books a year, so they can only, and like you said, they only really see a small percentage of the books written because people just can't get past the gatekeepers. Right. But, but you're changing that. So we're going to be your biggest cheerleaders on that. (laughs) How was it to work in magazines and newspapers as opposed to working as a literary agent? Did you enjoy it or did you just find that it wasn't for you really? Yeah. So currently I'm a content editor on an online publication. So I've kind of run the game. I have worked previously for magazines. always work five jobs, basically. Always, basically. (laughs) I've actually, you know, pared down recently. Now we're down to like three. So it's great. We're going to need to know what your diet is to get the energy that you have. (laughs) It's funny though, because I do, there's like an autoimmune thing that runs in my family where I actually have to get a certain amount of sleep and I'm tired all the time. And also there's severe depression in there. So I'm actually like exhausted most of the time, even if we get like a 12 hour sleep, well, you look I, good right now. So we'll see. <laughs> so I've, I've definitely like, you know, I have my own physical limits too. Right. So there's a lot of time management that goes into all of that. But in terms of magazines and newspapers, I enjoyed it. It's definitely a different type of writing, a different mm. sort of gear switch, not only in terms of style guides, because usually uses AP style for both of those. And I believe my online publication uses mostly AP style, but we do have like some house style quirks. It was fun. It's definitely a lot tighter in terms of writing. So in a book, obviously you can spend a little bit of time describing things in a newspaper, you know, you put the most important information first and you don't spare an adjective or adverb at all in the copy. So it was definitely a learning experience. I enjoy book publishing more, but I think it is really helpful to do different types of writing too. I've always been told if you ever experiencing kind of writer's block or a writer's slump to try out a different type of writing. So maybe try out poetry or devotionals or something else to kind of switch gears in your brain and get yourself out of that sort of writer's block funk. So it has been helpful in terms of quick turnaround because sometimes we have to write articles within a day. So I'll write a 1500 word article in about an hour and get it up on the site. So I enjoyed it. I think I definitely, my ultimate dream is definitely to run a publishing company someday, but it has been a really helpful experience too, to kind of be on deadline frequently and learn the importance of writing relatively quickly. Right, right. I think that's really good advice to try other types of writing. I think sometimes those who want to be book writers feel like, or think, or they tell themselves, I don't have time to do that because I need to finish this book. But as long as you're on writer's block or it's not really going well, you're just wasting time. (laughs) So it's like, it's these weird demons I think creative people have, but to try your hand at something and maybe get like a a job just for a time, trying to find those deadlines and things will always help writers. We tend to self-impose deadlines that we don't always follow. I think that's people's biggest complaint, at least on Twitter and Instagram. I always think, well, stop being on Instagram and go write. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
We prefer to put up the memes anyway. So you have four books now published. Mm -hmm. So you've honed your practice. You've written 10 stories, we'll say. And then you get, what was the one that got published first? What number did it go along with your your backlog? Because the one that got published first was weird. It was actually University Press. We had a World War II veteran in in my college town who wanted his memoir basically written. So myself and another student interviewed him, compiled over 300 pages of diary entries, notes, newspaper entries, everything that, and then kind of pulled together that and it was published by our University Press. So I guess technically... That was the first one. But if we're talking about fiction, (laughs) fiction, oh gosh, lineup. I mean, I think the first book that I had written fiction-wise that got published was probably like 11 in that lineup. It's a modern day Daniel set in a high school. And that summer was crazy. I was in a bit of a delirium writing this thing because I was working like five jobs and taking classes and dealing with my like sister's wedding as maid of honor. So there was like a lot of stuff happening that summer. So that was definitely not the one I thought was going to get published first. I'm happy it did because it's going to be a full-blown trilogy by August, but it it definitely wasn't the one I was expecting to get uh, published first at all. So So how did your agent see it if that wasn't the one that you were trying to sell? So she was currently working on selling the other one. And I said, hey, here's another one I wrote this summer. It had been edited through, critiqued and everything. And we just happened to find a good publisher match about nine months later for it. So we gave it a go, but I definitely uh, didn't think it was going to be the first one. So that was, I think it was 11 in the lineup of That's books. That's interesting. Written. So if if you have an agent and it's go, taking a while, I actually interviewed Janelle Soselski. She's a historical romance writer and it took her four years to sell yeah. the book, which her agent was like persistent. And now, you know, of course she has quite a few published, right? like getting that one in there. But would you recommend if it's taking a while and they've finished another manuscript to just sort of write a note and say, hey, just to let you know, I have this other one as well. Is that a typical thing to do? So it totally depends on the agency. Mm. At our agency, we have multiple books out for the writers just because we know it takes time. Even like when you nudge publishers and stuff, sometimes they take years to get back. And it's funny because sometimes all of a sudden you'll get a note from them saying, oh, we want to publish this. And you'll look at the submission form and you've sent it to them two years ago. So yeah, no, I definitely recommend writing as much as you can. It really depends on the agency because some are sticklers about doing only one submission at a time. So that's really good to ask them. They usually will do a call before they make a decision and that's where they interview you, but you also interview them to kind of figure out if they're a good fit for you. But I personally recommend if your agent is open to it, I do recommend having more than one book out at a time because it's sometimes difficult to predict who's going to fall in love with what you may think that one book is going to sell instantly and then it doesn't. And then in another book where you're thinking, oh, yeah, maybe we'll get this place somewhere and then then someone takes it. So that's interesting. We often get surprised by the industry agents, even when we are paying attention to trends as much as possible. So, yeah, I would definitely recommend just be writing that new project uh, while the other one is out on submission and then obviously clean it up and get it ready. Yeah. Yeah. So as excited as it can be to get the agent, it's, you know, celebrate for a few days and then get back to writing basically. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> so it can take two years. That's amazing. Because two years is when they say, so two years later, they say they want to publish it and a publishing house can take up to two years to get it to the, 
the store. Right. So, so for the best example I can use here is I wrote a book back in 2018 and it took us about, I want to say like two and a half years to get this thing placed. We like publishers were interested. They asked for like the full, I think we had like 15 publishers ask for the full thing. All of them had different reasons for why they rejected it. They all like, and they all varied widely. And so it was very difficult to apply edits when you got contradicting information. Right. we finally got it placed and it will be published in 2023, but that is five years after that thing was written. So it does sometimes take a bit of time from even when you have an agent from when someone will take it on and when they will publish it. Interesting. So as you say that, I'm thinking as people are writing, especially let's say a contemporary book, like it's a contemporary setting. Do you think it affects like how much of the 2021 technology or the fads or whatever is going on right now, if you put that in your book, does it affect the sellability of it? So I really, so there's, there's two ways you can definitely approach this. And I've seen authors do kind of both. I will say a lot of publishers are not wanting a whole lot of pandemic related books. So yes, um, please. as a reader, I don't want it. I, I know this is done. I don't want to read about it. We are ready for this thing to be done. But what I will say is sometimes uh, you have to kind of like give the verisimilitude of it being modern. So don't put every single slang word you can think of or any like of the most up-to-date technology that is out there because in about five years, when the book gets published, it will probably be outdated. I write contemporary, so I understand the balance. Another thing I've seen authors do is just set it in the year that they wrote it. So let's say you wrote a book in 2014 and it doesn't get published until 2021. Maybe they'll set the book in 2014. It's pretty clear that it's set. Either they'll just write 2014 on chapter one or something. That is another way I've seen them approach it. But yeah, just kind of giving the realism, but not hyper-realism of Mm. it being modern. And I mean, we do this with dialogue too. Dialogue is never exactly how you say it. Otherwise, we'd have a lot of ums and likes and all of that in dialogue. So just make it sound realistic, but also be really wary. I remember in one of my books, I had a character who was on TikTok. And then at one point last year, people thought TikTok was going away. So I thought, oh my gosh, I got to, you know, get in there and change this. So yeah, finding ways where it seems like we, it, the modern technology is being used, but not too much so that it will date the book really quickly. Yeah, it is a bit of a balance, isn't it? It's like, And I've read several opinions on it and it, it just like, it can overwhelm you. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, I guess unless it's really pertinent to the book. Yeah, just sort of have the little, so the, the, the feelers that the reader knows what year it is, but. Yeah, TikTok going away would be a <laughs> difficulty at that point. Like, what's TikTok? <laughs> what is this? It, so, it yeah. seems weird that we would forget what it is, but we're our mind. Uh, we have such short attention spans. I feel like in three years, the kids would be like, "What?" <laughs> but right. yeah, I mean, MySpace was a big deal when I was in college, so <laughs> nobody knows what that is anymore. <laughs> you definitely date yourself when you put it in there, right? <laughs> going back to a cult classic or something. Um, so. Do you see any sort of industry changes coming up or things that new writers or indie writers are who are always, we were talking before, the last ones to know about it because they're just out there on the on the outskirts of the publishing industry? Anything that's going on that's going to kind of affect the publishing world in the next few years? No, this is a good question because are we tar- talking in terms of like marketing trends or what mm. uh, people are writing about? Yeah, maybe... Uh, 
maybe marketing trends and maybe what's going to be published because whatever gets pushed by the houses is typically what then readers want to go and pick up, I guess. Well, I don't, I don't know in the next few years because I think the publishing industry has just kind of finished picking up the pieces of the pandemic. Uh, it took the publishing industry a while to kind of figure itself out in 2020. So I will say we definitely all kind of learned the importance of uh, virtual marketing in the past couple of years. Okay. Um, you know, obviously authors would have different events that they had scheduled for last year that were in person. And then those ended up being canceled. So that might actually be where indie authors had a little bit of an advantage. Oh, they yeah. were already online. For sure. Because I remember getting actually on a meeting with a Penguin editor with Kyle and they were talking about how it was difficult because most of their marketing for a lot of their books was book expos and in-person events. So they kind of had to figure out how to do the whole online marketing thing. So I would say that's a big thing. Newsletters are definitely a big thing, especially with uh, social media like Facebook and everything kind of taking a little bit more control away from authors in terms of groups and all that. Um, People are encouraging people to get as many newsletter subscribers as possible so readers can kind of stay in the loop about books. So I would say that is a big thing. Um, For any authors who are reaching out to agents, platform is becoming an increasingly big thing. And this always, this drove me crazy as an author initially too. So I totally understand. But I remember getting on even meetings with big five publishers and them saying, you know, Although platform isn't everything, sometimes if we're deciding between two authors of equal merit and one has slightly more platform than the other, we're going to go with the one that has a bigger And what are they talking about with platform? Is it having an established author newsletter? Is it social media, website? Yeah, so platform is so hard to find, but it's usually the best way to kind of explain is discoverability. How are people going to find out about you and your book. So sometimes it can be social media, it can be your newsletters. Obviously, when in person events open up, do you have regular speaking events? Do you talk to people regularly? How often are you marketing yourself? You to asking readers? introverts to get out into the oh, world. No, <laughs> I know they're asking so much of us because I'm a massive introvert. I am a homebody. I you know, I always get nervous. We just want to write our books and have people read it. That's it, guys. Come on. Uh, I know. Trust me. I feel this so strongly because, I mean, I'm actually one of those weird authors who likes public speaking, but it's hard. It is really hard to kind of put yourself out there and be not only author, but be researcher, editor, salesperson, marketer. There right. are a lot of hats that publishers are putting on authors. So, I mean, this is, again, where the indie publishing has a leg up because a lot of the authors are already really well-versed in this. Well, they kind of know that they have to do it alone. So if you get an agent and you get published traditionally, what does that entail for an author? What are they responsible for? I mean, I I doubt that it's like C.S. Lewis where you get to give it and then you guys take care of everything and you get to be a hermit again. Right. That is so nice. So the agent usually doesn't step in unless the author is having a problem with the publisher. But what the okay. publisher does or what the publisher should be doing, publishers are kind of putting more and more stuff on authors. And that could be a whole other conversation. But what the publisher should be doing is, first of all, they should be upfronting the cost. If a publisher is charging you anything, they are not a traditional publisher. Okay. So they should be upfronting the cost of the edit, the formatting, the book typesetting, the cover Uh, They should be doing some sort of marketing. I'm seeing a lot um, more publishers are kind of putting in uh, the majority of marketing on authors, 
But I honestly think the most successful publishers are the ones who do the majority of the marketing themselves just because they know what they are doing and the authors usually don't. Speaking as an author who does not know what I'm doing and I'm several years into this thing. And and the reach just isn't there. No, it's not. So I mean, obviously, if you're constantly asking your friends and family to buy books, they're going to get a little bit annoyed at you. So so they should be doing some marketing of some okay. sort. And this is going to look different depending on either the size of the publisher or their specific marketing plan, because I've worked with, I think, about four different publishers now in terms of my own books, and all of them have a different way of how they do things. So okay. they should be doing that. They should be keeping you in the loop in terms of timeline, like when your pre-order is going to be up, when they're going to get you the cover, when your release date is. Sometimes those dates change. And- <laughs> discover this along the way, but, um, uh, yeah, so that is what they generally should be doing. They should be making the book the most polished it can be and getting in front of the most readers they can. Okay. But they the expect product. you to do some marketing, right? Even if you get with big five, cause I have friends who've been published by uh big five, and I guess it's technically big four since two of them merged, but uh, it'll, it'll seen- take years for everyone to stop saying five. Oh, I know. <laughs> Does we need another publisher to rise? Oh, to will be, take the fifth exactly. Spot. Just take the slot. You you need to rise up and take the slot. There you go. <laughs> I will just create the fifth publisher. But yeah, so they. Why am I forgetting what the question was? Oh, what no. what marketing are they expecting the author themselves to do? Yep, it depends on them, but usually it's at least some social. They want the author to be open to doing things like podcasts, blog tours. Okay. Uh, the author has to be open to that sort of thing. Even if you're like massively introverted, you still have to be okay with marketing yourself, doing book signing events when everything opens up again. They usually expect the author to be doing something. It can depend on what the author's strengths are. Uh, for instance, my one friend, Caroline George, is amazing at Instagram. So she did uh, the majority of her marketing on there, but you know, another author may be really good at YouTube or they may be really good at in-person school events. So usually as long as you have a marketing plan, sometimes they will suggest you submit the marketing plan to them. I usually have wow. a 25 page marketing plan for each book because I'm crazy. So I will send that to them so they can kind of have an idea of what I'm going to be doing. So, for book. so an author is going to need to know how to write up a marketing plan. I'm not sure many know that. Right. I mean, I was kind of just guessing half the time. <laughs> I, I tried to kind of see what other authors were doing in mm. my genre and try to play copycat a little bit. I know there are probably resources out there. I think I've seen different books where they do walk authors through, but you know, marketing trends change and everything. Yeah. Following jo- following blogs like Jane Friedman is probably a really good practice yeah. just because they usually have great resources. I also suggest almostanauthor.com. They usually have a lot of tips in terms of that. But yeah, it's hard to navigate, especially when you kind of, you're like, okay, I have a contract. Now what? Now what do I do in terms of marketing? It can be difficult. I mean, I'm on my fifth book that's going to be coming out. And like, I just now have kind of chiseled away certain things that weren't working and figured out other things that were. Yeah. And it can be tricky. Okay. So just be open to what they have and what the industry is doing, I guess, and sort of look around your genre. So let, let's talk about your genre. What what do you what type of books do you write? Oh gosh, so many things now. So up until this year, it was mostly YA. Okay. And um, now I'm also contracted for adult sweet romance and a middle grade. So we're kind of spanning That's- a little bit. 
In don't don't mix those up. No, don't. Well, as long as it's sweet romance, it would be worse if it was erotic. Like, oh my goodness, oh. no! So no, my books are all clean. That's definitely a thing. It's like I try to have clean content in all of them, no matter what the genre. But that's another thing is sometimes authors are worried if they're going to get pigeonholed in mm. the industry. Am I just going to be a YA writer? Am I just going to be this? And um, the, luckily, the answer is no. That kind of was a thing in the industry several decades back was you kind of did your thing and you didn't deviate from that. But if you have a very familiar author voice, if your books have very similar elements, no matter what the genre is, you can definitely kind of hop around a little bit. That's good news. That's good news. Because I know, like, I am i don't stick to one in genre. Quite a few people don't. And so, yeah, that is a fear where you're like, okay, I sold one book, but how am I going to sell this <laughs> other one? You know, so you, let's go through a little bit. I'm just going to pull up your books here as I okay. look around. Um, let's go through, you have suspense. Your YA has suspense, superhero, and time travel. Yep. So, wow. <laughs> um <laughs> So you have different genres just there. How do you come up with all these different ideas? Do they just sort of hit you? Yeah. So it depends on the specific idea, but it usually starts with like a what if scenario. Okay. But one thing I will say about most of my books, with the exception of the sweet romance, is they have an element known as slipstream, which is I take reality and like twist it just slightly. Okay. So I will say that is definitely a thing. But yeah, I usually starts with like a what if scenario. But it totally depends on the book because sometimes certain things will hit you in your gen ed Old Testament class. And then sometimes uh, it'll hit you when you're about to go to bed um, or, you know, when you're in the shower or something. So it really entirely depends. I actually have like a list of like 50 different book ideas um, currently running on my phone. So we have plenty. Good idea to do, though. <laughs> yeah, it, it is strange how different ideas can hit you, how some stories won't leave you, but they take years to hash out and other stories oh, yeah. can come out within like a month. My fantasy, my magical realm, I think is what it's called. I need to, is, it was, it took like two months, done. This yeah. fourth one is like, oh my gosh, yeah. I have it here, but the words, I have the the images, you know, but the words are not coming out. It's just taking more time to plot it. I've never plotted before. It's just always, <laughs> it's just very weird. Weird yeah. how our brains work. But you have a second one coming out. So this is a duology. So the first one's called Dear Hero and the second one's called Dear Henchman. So what are those about? Are those YA as well? Yeah. So a YA superhero chat fiction. So everything is kind of told through text message. The first one is a hero and a villain meet on a nemesis pairing app. They fight, but they don't expect to fall and in love. Pairing app. <laughs> it's, yeah, it was so much fun. I co-authored this with... Um, fight or what... what? <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like a Tinder app, but for you know to find your like nemesis for superheroes. I love so it. Kind of, um, I really like I, that idea. That are you into superheroes or, do, or is this oh, just like hopelessly so? I yeah. love superheroes. Always have. So yes, um, I co-authored it with Alyssa Rote, who um, is another agent, and she also loves superheroes. Yeah. I'm with them. So we had a ton of fun. We actually wrote this thing in like nine days. We were talking about how, um, you know, certain books, you know, come really quickly and then others, one I'm currently working on, I've researched for like five years. So right. I totally, totally get that. So the sequel kind of basically takes it from the henchmen and sidekicks perspective, and it's kind of up to them 
to save the world since the villain and hero are down for the count. So that was a ton of fun to write. My author made us write that in eight days because she wanted us to break our record. So <laughs> that was a Oh lot. my goodness. You guys are uh, funny. But it's super funny. She has such, she is so silly. So it was so fun to write this thing with her because um, although there are a lot of serious moments, there's a ton of humor in it as well. So it was a lot of fun to write this thing. So what was your what if that got you guys writing this? So the what if I've been reading a lot of epistolary books at the time where there are a lot of letters from like pen pals back and forth. And at the time, I think there was kind of like where Marvel was in its heyday with Infinity War and whatever Endgame coming out after that. And so we were kind of on a superhero high. And at that point, I thought, you know, what would kind of happen if we had sort of a pen pal program? But it was for villains and heroes who are trying to find that perfect nemesis who they can duke it out with. I love that. So she took the villain, I took the hero, and okay. opened a document, and we went crazy. So Oh, so you even wrote, like, from the perspective of one per writer. Right. And we, of course, incorporated other characters who kind of showed yeah. up throughout the storyline. But, uh, yeah, we just basically got on a Google Doc. And the funny thing is, I'm a plotter, and she is a pantser. Oh, so no. it was the most pantsing I'd ever done in a book. Um, it was funny, because she was like, this is the most plotting I've ever done. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it was, it was fun kind of, cause you never knew what they were going to say next either. You kind of right. had a certain goal you were trying to reach for that section, but you didn't know what their character was going to say. So it kind of all depended what they were going to type next. Well, that sounds like fun. Was that the first time that you've written with somebody else? Yeah. Well, I guess if we're excluding the memoir for the, the memoir. World veteran, yeah, which is funny cause I'm a super independent person. I don't really play well with other other people just because I usually have like a certain way I want to do things. But we, we did the writing program together. Listen, I, and I think one of our assignments required us to write together and we realized, you know, we have very similar voices. We kind of click together. We, um, my blind spot, she's really strong and kind of vice versa. So we decided to just kind of give it a go. And uh, the rest is history. We're co-authoring, you know, half the books I have coming out now. So awesome. yeah. Oh, that's really cool. So did you sell Dear Hero as a duology? Did you know that you're going to have another one? We did. When we got to the end of it, there were some loose ends. So we definitely okay. wanted to kind of do it from the other perspective. So we did know it was going to be a duology. I think with the publisher, we initially just signed book one because this is actually a thing with publishers now, which is sad sometimes. Is not every publisher signs a series. Sometimes oh. they just sign book one. And they want to see how it does. And if it does well, then they'll sign book two. Um, and that was the case with my Daniel trilogy too. So I was stressed out because we signed one book at a time. So I didn't know if book three was going to get signed. I didn't know if book two was going to. So oh, wow. stressful, but that's not always the case. Um, for instance, for our sweet romance, we had three books in that series contracted at once. So okay. some publishers are still doing series. It just kind of depends. So did you end up, Publishing Dear Henchman with the same publisher? Yep, same publisher. Okay. So it's coming out when this when the podcast comes out. I believe it comes out four days after that. So yes, yeah, same publisher. We worked with them. I was happy that they fell in love with it because at first um, when we were uh, sending it out to publishers, people thought the idea was too eclectic. They thought that epistolaries weren't going to sell, like chat fiction wasn't going to sell. And it was really funny because as soon as this publisher took it on, when she kind of fell in love with it and took it, all of a sudden then I was seeing deals for all these chat fiction books out on the market. So, you know, what one publisher says is not going to sell. They may take on a month later. So it's just, That's you know, 
I can't yeah. remember the name of the book, but there was one that went through emails and it came out in like 2006, I think. And it was like through emails in an office setting. Oh. So there was the constant, like every once in a while, the, and it was written by a British author. I have never laughed so much in my life because you don't actually have to set it up much more than saying this is a corporate setting. And right. then all the accidents that happen, especially in 2000, probably six when he's writing it. And, you know, people are just, I, I emails only a decade old at that point. And so right. these communications and it was a hilarious book. So I'm surprised that they weren't, that they were like so surprised by this, but it sounds like a really great book. You can almost, you can imagine you're living in that time. We chat all the time on, you know, right. that, that is our life now. So you, there isn't a whole lot of, well, is there a lot of world building or are you, or are you kind of depending on the reader seeing it? We did. I kind of emerged partway through. It's, okay. it's set in like the United States and stuff. It's just kind of superheroes are more prevalent, obviously, than they are currently. But yeah, we did actually quite a bit of world building okay. in terms of what the hierarchy looks like, how the superhero kind of business has e evolved over time, how it's okay. more about influencers in the superhero world versus actually saving people. So we did like actually... Real life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I find this a really interesting plot. I'm really excited about this. This comes out April 20th. So the second one comes out April 20th. But everyone can get the first one now. Yeah. And then they can, pre they head to Amazon or just the usual channels. You should be able to find. Okay. Yeah. I think my 13 year old would find that interesting. She's not really into superheroes, but I like that just sounds like a really great plot, a really fun story. So you have this and this is called, well, it will be, it's called the henchman, but it's called the dear hero. Well, it's called dear henchman and it's called dear hero. Du duology? Yep, the Dear okay. Hero Duology. So just, yeah, two books in that series. Two books there. And then um, you have your blog, like I've said before, hopebollinger.com. There's a lot of information here. Like you can see all of the, the books that you have, but you have so much information for writers in general. I'm glad that I found you because I hadn't seen you before, but man, you write a lot. <laughs> it's really great to see that. So in the show notes, everyone, you will find a link to Hope Bollinger's website and you will be able to see her books there. Definitely check out Dear Henchman because I'm, I'm going to check that out. I'll put a link directly to that in the show notes as well. And then if you are writing, wanting to write, looking to write anything in the publishing industry, I definitely recommend going to HopeBollinger.com because she's got tons and tons of information there. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us about the literary world that's kind of a shaded in, in shadows for the rest of us who are outside of it. And your books sound really, really interesting. No, thanks so much for having me on here. I, I feel like the time went by so fast. So thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I've had a great time. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, 
you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.